As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. In Sacramento, California, within a mile from the Hall of Justice and the Capitol, stands a cream-colored Victorian-style house. The cozy two-story home on F Street serves as a boarding house for low-income tenants. The landlady has a grandmotherly charm and warmly welcomes those who are down and out with nowhere left to go. It's February 1988, and 51-year-old Alvaro Bert Montoya has spent his life living on the street and drifting from homeless shelter to homeless shelter. He suffers from mental illness. He finds himself on the doorstep of the boarding house on F Street needing shelter. The landlady kindly opens her doors to the troubled soul. It's now November, and Montoya is reported missing by a social worker. He hadn't been seen for three months. Police decide to pay a visit to his last known address. 1426 F Street. On November 11th, homicide detectives John Cabrera and Terry Brown, along with federal probation agent Jim Wilson, arrive at the boarding house late in the morning. Rumors of suspicious activity led the trio to inspect the yard. The landlady watches from her second-story porch as the three men begin digging into her garden. At first dig, nothing seems to be amiss. But while digging a second hole, Agent Wilson's shovel strikes something hard and unidentifiable three feet under. Detective Cabrera jumps into the hole and begins to grab at what could be a tree root. With a violent tug, he finally yanks the object free from the soil and examines it. I'm sitting in this hole and I'm hanging on to what looks like a human femur bone. Just as we kept digging, we kept finding bodies and more bodies. And it just seemed endless. Whatever we took down, whatever we moved, wherever we were digging, we'd find a body. It was just unbelievable. She put seven people in this small yard, and there wasn't even a witness to any of these burials. Not one. Over the next three days, 
Seven bodies are discovered under the ground at 1426 F Street. The landlady and number one suspect is a 59-year-old woman named Darthea Puente. When you look at this person, you don't automatically assume or even think that this is a serial killer. She looks like everybody's grandma. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Dorothea Puente, the Death House landlady. Puente was born Dorothea Gray in January 1929 near San Bernardino County, California. She was six of seven children, raised poor in an unstable household vacant of basic comforts. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber says, Dorothea, you know, lived a very difficult early childhood. She was deprived in substantial ways. She didn't have loving parents. She had to scavenge for food. Both of Puente's parents suffered from alcoholism. Reportedly, Puente's father would threaten to commit suicide in front of his children. He died of tuberculosis when Puente was eight. Puente's mother was a sex worker who abused and often deserted her children. In 1938, she died in a motorcycle accident. Puente was nine. Orphaned, Puente bounced between homes of relatives and foster parents between Napa and Los Angeles. She was finally placed in an orphanage where she was allegedly sexually abused. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley believes her dysfunctional upbringing set the stage for Puente's future. She was kind of passed from pillar to post quite a lot, so she didn't form those stable, secure attachments with her caregivers that many of us do, and I think that went on to shape the person that she became. In 1945, at just 16 years old, Dorothea married her first husband. They had two daughters, but gave them up, one to relatives and the other for adoption. The couple split in 1948. That same year, Dorothea was convicted of fraud for trying to float a check under a false name. She served four months in jail. By 1952, she wed her second husband. The couple then moved to Sacramento. Over the course of a decade, the couple's marriage was blighted by Dorothea's penchant for drinking, gambling, and other men. According to court files, Dorothea's second husband had her committed to a psychiatric ward in 1961, where she was placed on antipsychotics. The couple divorced in 1966. Only two years later, 39-year-old Dorothea met her third husband, who was 16 years her junior. But the marriage didn't last, and they separated a year later. By the mid-1960s, Dorothea had been married three times and taken on the name of her third ex-husband, Puente. She had already served time in prison for forging checks, but now she had found a new way to earn money. 
She starts to, to get involved in sex work, selling her body um, to, to basically put clothes on her back and feed herself. So she is living this, this quite kind of feral existence. Now, here's an individual for whom violence and abuse was just normal for her. If we look back at her childhood experiences, they're certainly not normal and warm and, and loving. They are quite brutal and quite cold. So this is the only thing that, that she knows. It's, it's those basic emotions and those basic instincts. Puente eventually moved on from sex work and decided to pursue a different venture. She discovered this occupation of being a caregiver, which requires minimal qualifications. And all of a sudden, a world was opened up to her. Puente began renting an apartment at 1426 F Street in downtown Sacramento. She took on the role of caretaker for the other tenants in the Victorian-like home, before turning it into an unlicensed boarding house. In 1977, a local Spanish-language newspaper featured a story on Puente, referring to her as La Doctora. Puente later bolstered the success of her illegal enterprise by making donations to political campaigns and charities so she could rub shoulders with high-status figures and build her credibility as a caretaker. Not long after, Puente met 61-year-old Ruth Monroe. Ruth's son, Bill Clausen, remembers when he and his mom first met Dorothea Puente. We met Dorothea through a gentleman that my mom met while she was working. And he kept asking her out, and he, she finally went out with him. And then they started seeing each other, and he introduced her to Dorothea. During their friendship, Dorothea decided she wanted to open a restaurant. And my mom wasn't working anymore, and um, my mom had a little bit of money. So she ended up opening the little cafe at the Round Corner Bar. Ruth ended up marrying Harold, the man who had introduced her to Puente. But soon, he was diagnosed with cancer and was living full-time in a hospital. Ruth didn't want to live alone, so Puente made a proposal. Ruth could live with her at the boarding house. We moved her in there on Easter Sunday, 1982, and she died April, April 26th, two weeks later. Um, I saw my mom every day from the time I moved her in there. I stopped by there on my way home from work. And the last three days of her life, um, she seemed like she was getting sick. And when I went there, I noticed that she had a drink in her hand and my mom didn't drink. So I asked her, I said, what's that? And she said, it's a drink that Dorothea fixed to, to calm her nerves. I said, fine, you know, I didn't think anything of it because I knew they were friends, and okay, fine. Ruth's health withered away so quickly over a few days that the next time Bill went to visit her, she was almost catatonic. Mom was laying there. I sat next to her and touched her and told her, I said, Dorothea's taking care of you, you'll be fine. And uh, she had a tear coming out of her eye, and that was it. She didn't say anything. She just laid there. The next morning, I got a call from my brother 
telling me that mom was mom was dead. Went over there. She had already been taken away by the coroner's wagon, and Dorothea had said that she committed suicide. Ruth's sudden death stunned Bill. Totally out of character. She had she had everything to live for. She had grandchildren. She was happy. What's well, not easy? Not easy. You still have the pain in your heart. It was a tragedy, but no one thought to suspect foul play. By August that same year, Dorothea was back in trouble with the authorities. She had been abusing her position as caretaker of her fellow tenants. John Cabrera was one of the detectives on the Puente case. Dorothea had pled guilty to fraud. She was uh, forging signature on the back of Social Security checks of her victims and then cashing them. She uh, received a prison sentence and was sent to the women's prison down in Chowchilla. Well, in 1985, she was paroled. And when she paroled, she came back to Sacramento and she came back to 1426 F Street. The caretaker was back in business. In September 1985, 56-year-old Dorothea Puente was out of prison after serving three years for fraud and back living at 1426 F Street, the boarding house where she acted as landlady for low-income tenants. Despite being on parole, Puente continued to exploit the other residents by collecting their social security checks and keeping most of the money for herself unbeknownst to them. Puente managed to build a good reputation with local social workers who were unaware of her nefarious deeds and would refer clients to her that were turned away from other boarding houses. Puente opened her home to recovering alcoholics, drug addicts, and people with mental illnesses and chronic physical ailments who otherwise might not have anyone to care for them. She knows that vulnerable people aren't really looked after, that, that people are forgotten about, that, that, that people don't care about them. And, and she goes and she targets them. So she's a predator who's, who's not just picking up on individual vulnerabilities, but she's picking up on social ones as well. Puente went undetected for three years. Tenants at the Sacramento boarding house came and went until November 1988, when a local social worker, Judy Moise, filed a missing persons report. She had lost touch with her client, a 51-year-old called Bert Montoya. Bert was a diagnosed schizophrenic. I got a copy of the report, and um, what I started doing then was running a background check on the missing person who was Bert Montoya, and trying to get a little bit of background on him and also running a check on the caretaker who was in charge of this particular individual. And Bert was a disabled adult. And uh, the caretaker, Dorothea Puente, was apparently in charge of him living here. On November 11th, 1988, John Cabrera, his partner, Terry Brown, and Puente's parole officer, Jim Wilson, decided to pay a visit to the boarding house. Prior to leaving, on that day, uh, we were starting to leave, and Judy Moise um, turned to me and said, you guys better take some shovels. And I went, well, what for? And she said, because I've driven by in the past, and I've seen mounds of dirt out there. 
and uh, it kind of looked like a burial ground. Heeding Moise's advice, John, Terry, and Jim packed shovels before leaving for Puentes. Well, we come to the front door, knock on the door, the three of us, and uh, she answered. And she's dressed very nicely. She looked at me and said, I was expecting you guys. You know, it kind of caught me off guard. And I said, OK, well, I said, you know why we're here? We're here to see, you know, uh, about Bert, what happened to him. And she said, yeah. And uh, I asked if we could come in. John's first task was to find out more about the mysterious house. What is this place, 1426 F Street? What is it here that you're running? What is this place? What are you doing here? And at that time, she looked at me, she looked at her parole officer, and she just said, you know, um, Jim, uh, I'm in violation of my parole. Puente had been ordered not to run a boarding house after her release from prison in 1985, but managed to get away with it for three years, deceiving people with her charm. Dorothea Puente played this role. She crafted this incredibly skilled performance as a harmless little old lady. So she would often take her teeth out. She would tell people she was 10 or 15 years older than she actually was. She wanted to present herself as, as innocent and kindly when she was anything but. While Jim and Terry chatted with Puente in the kitchen, John began his search, hoping to find clues to Bert Montoya's disappearance. After I completely looked through the rooms, didn't find anything, I came back. And bearing in mind what Judy had talked about as far as the mounds of dirt, I asked Dorothea, I said, look, um, I'm going to be able to tell the social worker that we looked and we didn't find anything. And she was somewhat agreeable with that. OK, you know, that's good. And um, then I said, I have one more question for you. Can I dig in your yard? And she says, why don't we do this? You guys go back to the office. I know you have a lot better work to do than to be over here. And then I'll make a phone call. I'll call some people. They'll come over here, and they'll do the digging for you, and then you can come back. I thanked her, and I said, you know, we're here. We have the shovels. We'll just go ahead and dig around. If there's anything we put out of place, we'll do our best to get it back you know, to the way it was. And so she says, OK. And that's when we went outside to dig around. Three of us were digging. And in one of the holes is what we started finding, something similar to cloth. And it just seemed out of place in the ground. And then I dig a little bit further, and I was down to about three feet. And that's when I thought I struck a tree root. So I took the shovel and I started banging on it and I started trying to dislodge this root or sever it so I could continue to dig down. And I couldn't do it. It just wouldn't break. So I got down in the hole and with both of my hands embracing my feet, I just kept pulling on this, what I thought to be a root. And I pulled on it and pulled on it and finally it dislodged itself. And I'm sitting in this hole and I'm hanging on to what looks like a human femur bone. And at that time, get out of the hole, and I realized something's up. We've just come across human remains. The three men were completely shocked, as was Puente. She looked 
down into the hole and she could see the bone. And she grabs your mouth and she's, oh, is that what I think it is? And Yeah. What can you tell me about this? She says, I don't know. But there's been other people that's been living here. I was in prison and there was a lot more people living here before her. John halted the dig. A full forensic search of the yard would have to begin the next day. At that time, I decided I was going to take Dorothea back down to the Hall of Justice, and I was going to now question her in full. I questioned her about what I found. I questioned her about where Bert was. I'd even told her as part of my technique in my interview, I said, I bet if I dig anymore, I'm going to find more bodies. And she just looked right at me and said, well, if you do, I didn't put them there. News spread quickly of the discovery of human remains. The press swarmed on the boarding house the very next day, November 12, 1988. Deputy Coroner Laura Santos was in charge of the excavation. I think there's a mode you go into when you're an investigator that you just know you have a job to focus on, and you just focus on that. And there were a lot of distractions because there were reporters from all over the world and there were crowds of people lining the streets and people would shout at me and, and tell me things like, turn towards the camera when you're digging. And, um, you know, I just had to ignore it and shut it all out because I just felt I had a job to do and I knew it was a really important job and that a lot of what happened in the future was gonna hinge on what I did as far as whether she was prosecuted or not. Despite having a body unearthed in her yard, 59-year-old Dorothea Puente had not been charged with any offense. As of yet, there was no reason to suspect she may be responsible. As John Cabrera continued digging, Puente called him into the house. And she says, am I under arrest? And I just thought, how odd. What, what was it that gave her the impression that she was under arrest? Immediately, I said, no. And I said, why do you ask? And she said, well, all of this is making me nervous. And she goes, I would like to get a cup of coffee. And I'd like to go over to where my nephew is around the corner at the hotel. And I said, okay, get what you need and then I'll walk you over there. She comes walking out, has a little red coat, has her purse, walk down the stairs, walk out. But what I had told her was that I would escort her because there were a lot of people starting to gather, and I thought, I don't want anyone walking up to her or bothering her, so I used that ruse to uh, walk her down to the corner. A photographer captured the moment. A gentle, grandmother-like Puente is seen in heels taking refuge under a pink umbrella. She's wearing a bright red coat and carrying a large purse. Cabrera is on her left, escorting her out of her home as if he's protecting her. Not quite what you'd expect from someone whose backyard is full of dead bodies. I watched her go all the way down and then go up into the hotel. And that was the last I saw of her at that time. So I run back and I continue digging again. Short time later, I hit something. And I'm fiddling around with my shovel. I'm trying to get it up, figuring what's down here. And I keep trying to bring it up and bring it up, and I do. And in my shovel, 
is a human leg. So immediately, I stop, I yell to my commander, we have another one. And he runs over, and the first thing he asks is, where's Dorothea? A second body had been found buried in her yard, and she was nowhere to be seen. But she wasn't at the hotel having a coffee. It had all been a ruse so she could make an escape. Dorothea Puente was on the run. On Saturday, November 12, 1988, a police forensic team was digging up the yard of a boarding house in Sacramento, California. They had just unearthed a second body. Dorothea Puente, the 59-year-old landlady, had left the house and headed to a nearby hotel to have a coffee. I said I took her and watched to go to the coffee shop. She's supposedly over there at the hotel. So then another detective came and found out by speaking with um, the person at the counter in there that, in fact, Dorothea had come into the hotel, walked through the lobby, went to a payphone, picked up a payphone, and called, apparently called a taxi cab because the cab arrived and took off. Puente fled. And so at that time, we called in the FBI and, um, you know, enlisted the help of other uh, resources and outside agencies in trying to locate her because that is what was key right now, is to try to find her as fast as we could. Back at 1426 F Street, one of the many people who had gathered to watch the excavation shared important information with Deputy Coroner Laura Santos. He told the story that um, he had dug holes in this yard for Dorothea and she paid him cash. And then she, and he, she just told him she was burying trash. So he came in and pointed out where he had dug holes. Over the next three days, the excavation of the yard continued. Just as we kept digging, we kept finding bodies and more bodies. And it just seemed endless. Whatever we took down, whatever we moved, wherever we were digging, we'd find a body. It was just unbelievable. She put seven people in this small yard, and there wasn't even a witness to any of these burials, not one. The seventh and final body was found on November 14th, three days after the first excavation. It was buried right in front of the house, just feet from the sidewalk. Well, she was kind of bundled up in almost like a, a scrunched up seated position, but she was missing her head, hands, and feet. I went through every flower pot and emptied them out to make sure that we weren't missing anything, but those appendages were never found. To this day, we've never recovered the head, hands, or feet. Their whereabouts, it's anybody's guess. If the walls in this home could talk, we would probably be horrified. Three days after the discovery of the seventh body, Dorothea Puente was finally found. She had made it almost 400 miles from Sacramento to Los Angeles, but she had been spotted by a man in a bar. He goes home, and while he's watching TV, he sees her on TV as being wanted on the news. So he calls LAPD, gives the information, 
I was just having drinks with this person. The man told the police which hotel Puente was staying in, and she was promptly arrested. John Cabrera immediately flew down to John Wayne Airport in nearby Santa Ana. We landed. LAPD pulled up out on the tarmac. We got out of the plane, and uh, there she was. They had her in cuffs. You know, we ceremoniously uh, walked over, and uh, they transferred her to me. I asked her, you know, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And then out of nowhere, she just says, Mr. Cabrera, I'm sorry. Cabrera was eager to question Puente about the seven bodies his team discovered in her yard. But there was still no proof that they had been murdered, and the 59-year-old fugitive refused to talk. We got back here to Sacramento. I took her down to the Hall of Justice. Um, At that time, I asked her if she wanted to give any kind of a statement, and uh, she declined, and so we just booked her into Sacramento County Jail. And that would be the last time that I'd ever speak with her. She would never speak to me again. Puente was locked away, but it wasn't over yet. The task of identifying the seven bodies had begun. Most of them didn't have teeth, or they had one or two teeth. In the case of the one body in the front yard, she didn't have any hands, so we couldn't do fingerprints. So we started gathering information. It appeared to be an impossible task, but Santos was dutiful. In the beginning, there were people saying, oh, you're never going to be able to do this. And so I was pretty happy that I was able to identify everybody, and they all had some kind of disposition You know, as far as most of them had some family members somewhere. And so they were all buried. Among the seven names was Bert Montoya, the man whose disappearance had initiated the search on F Street. Bert would be the third body that I found. He was buried under a concrete basin in the backyard. He was number three. And uh, that puzzle was now solved. Bert Montoya had wandered away. He had some type of mental deficiency, and his parents had always taken care of him. And about 13 years before he died, he disappeared from their home in New Orleans, Louisiana, and they had no idea what had happened to him. And it turned out that his 92-year-old mother was still alive, and she had been searching for him her whole life, or, you know, ever since he'd been missing. And so they were really, really grateful to know, even though it was such a sad ending, they were very thankful that they were able to have him come home. As well as identifying the victims, Laura needed to find out the cause of their deaths. How was this seemingly little old woman able to conquer her victims? What Santos found was a lethal cocktail. We did find traces of Delmaine, the drug in the bodies. And that was another thing that I was able to determine by gathering all these medical records on everyone. None of the victims had ever been prescribed Delmaine. Only Dorothea Puente had been described Delmaine. This particular drug, when coupled with alcohol, could be deadly. It just simply puts you in a catatonic state and with the alcohol, overwhelm the body and stop the heart. According to the L.A. Times, state prosecutors discovered documents that proved Puente persuaded her psychotherapist to prescribe her Dalmain. 
Toxicology reports show that each of the seven bodies exhumed in Puente's yard had traces of the same prescription sleeping pill. FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon suspects why Puente chose this method of murder. Poisoning is one of the ways we've seen female serial killers operate because it's a way that doesn't require a lot of physical strength. And so you don't have to overcome your victim physically because that's more difficult, particularly in this case, an elderly female, to overcome the victim physically. As detectives continue to dig into Puente's past, they found her victims were not limited to those found buried in the yard. All in all, in the very end of the investigation, she would be charged with nine murders, seven in the yard in which we would uncover. And then they added Ruth Monroe. Ruth's death had initially been ruled as suicide back in April 1982. The revelation was a shock for her son, Bill Clausen. Well, that kind of just pulled my stomach. And that's, like I said, that's when it, it brought everything back to where, okay, now we can go after her. You know, because all this time, we know that mom didn't commit suicide, especially with the amounts of the drugs that were in her, all the undissolved pills in her stomach. There's no way that she could have taken all of that and lived long enough to take everything. The ninth victim was a 77-year-old man from Oregon named Everson Gilmouth. He had become pen pals with Puente during her three years in prison for fraud. And then when she paroled in 1985, he went and picked her up and drove her back here to the boarding house. And this is where he would be staying. Within months, Everson appeared to sever all ties with his family and completely disappear. Every time they would call, he was always out. They never got to speak with him, and she always had a reason why. But um, in actuality, he picked her up in late 1985. He was laying in a homemade coffin along the Sacramento River in early 1986. And Everson would, would remain a John Doe until this case in 1988 broke. And that's when his family contacted our office and saying, we're looking for a father. Puente remained in custody for more than four years. Eventually, it was agreed that the trial would be held in Salinas in nearby Monterey County. We got a court date, and what I wanted to do was get in there, give my information, give my testimony, and for the sake of the families of these victims, wanted to make sure that she would never walk on the public streets again, that she wasn't going to do that or harm anybody anymore. But the trial would not be as straightforward as investigators hoped. Puente's refusal to admit to the murders meant they would somehow need to prove that the sweet little old lady in the dock was, in fact, a heartless killer. The trial of Dorothea Puente finally began at the Monterey County Courthouse on February 9, 1993. The 64-year-old admitted to burying the bodies of seven of her tenants and continuing to claim their Social Security money. But throughout, she maintained she was innocent of the nine counts of murder against her. Bill Clausen testified during the trial. When I walked to the uh, jury box or to where I needed to be. She just had a, just a cold stare. Just a cold stare. And 
After I testified, I walked away. She just kept staring straight ahead up by the judge. It angered me at the time. When I walked back facing her, as I was walking back to go back and sit down, my thoughts were just to, to, to strangle her. But I have more control than a lot of people. And I just walked past and went back and sat down and listened to the rest. During the five-month trial, the jury heard from both sides. Puente's defense team admitted that she was a thief, but not a murderer, while the prosecution argued that the traces of Dalmain proved that all the victims had been poisoned. She wanted their social security check. She wanted that cash. So she just had to dispose of them to get to it. So she saw her victims as obstacles. They were barriers that were getting in the way of something that she wants. And she very cool and calm and in a very calculated manner dispatched them so she could have their money. On August 26, 1993, after deliberating for 24 days, the jury found Darthea Puente guilty of three murders, but were deadlocked on all the other charges. I think what disappointed me as an investigator, and I think it disappointed uh, people that were involved in the case, that of all the nine charges of murder, seven of them were so similar there was no doubt that the seven bodies that we found in this yard should have all been guilty. However, only three of the seven in the yard would be charged against her. Four others would go 11 to 1, with one juror saying, no, he didn't believe that's what happened. The juror's refusal to deliberate meant that the judge, Michael Verga, had no choice but to declare a mistrial on the other six charges, one of them being the murder of Ruth Monroe. They were talking about doing a retrial because of that, but then they decided not to because of the cost, which, I mean, I understand. It took a lot of money as it was. And then the district attorney kept telling me, well, she's not going to get any more time. She's already going to spend life in prison. So we just kind of... Okay, we had to accept it. On December 10, 1993, Dorothea Puente was sentenced to life in prison without parole. She was immediately sent to the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. Although no charges were brought against any others, Rex Bieber and John Cabrera suspect that Puente must have had an accomplice. The issue of her disposing of the bodies creates one of the big mysteries of her case because Dorothea was not a large person. Some of these people were fairly large. And, and even to move a 100-pound sack of potatoes takes a fair amount of force. There's reason to believe that Dorothea actually enlisted the help of some other tenants who would prefer to be her helper in the burial than her victim being buried. It was obvious to us, given the bodies, especially Bert, someone helped her carry these bodies down. I have suspicions. I have my own opinion, who I believe helped her. But that's just something that I will always leave for the investigation. During her time in prison, Puente found a place in the limelight. 
She released a book of recipes called Cooking with a Serial Killer in 2004, and in 2008, she agreed to meet with Sacktown Magazine journalist Martin Coos in the prison visitor's hall. I waited, and I waited, and I waited some more. And as I sat there, I thought, I've been duped. Uh, I've fallen for another Dorothea Puente ruse. Uh, I scanned the room, wondering if perhaps I had missed her, but knowing that I hadn't. And that's when the door clanked open once more, and in walked Dorothea. Martin was intent on speaking to the 79-year-old. This was the first time I had ever interviewed a serial killer. So I stood up to greet her. Uh, we shook hands. Her hand felt small, bony. Um, she gave me a tight smile, and we began. Puente seemed happy to make small talk, but whenever Martin steered the conversation towards her crimes, she was adamant in her innocence. I said very um, explicitly to her that we were coming up on the 20th anniversary of her arrest, and that I was interested in talking to her about the case. Before I got uh, very far into that preamble, she interrupted me, and for the first time, she looked me square in the eye and said, I'm not guilty. After meeting with Puente six times, Martin's visit suddenly stopped after the killer had asked him to buy her $115 worth of gifts. In their final conversation, Martin asked her, How does it feel to be known as a murderer? And she looked me square in the eye and said, I don't give a shit what anyone else thinks. And that to me was uh, as telling as any comment that she had made to me in the time that we had been talking. This was someone who was in effect uh, revealing that no matter what people may think of her, she didn't care. On March 27, 2011, Dorothea Puente died in prison of natural causes. She was 82, and she took all her secrets to the grave. When I heard she died, I mean, it made me feel good. I, I just I had like a, a relief. If she was still alive and I saw her, I couldn't forgive her. I should, because it's the human thing to do. But in my heart, no, I really wouldn't want to. There's nothing I can do, though. She's, she's gone. Mom's gone. She's gone. So it's over. Dorothea Puente was a predator. She didn't look like one. She was a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, but the way that she chose her victims, she would pick people who others didn't care about, people who she could prey on. She's essentially a parasite who hooks onto people, gets what she wants out of them, and then coldly disposes of their bodies. So, so she really is an incredibly dangerous character. The home at 1426 F Street still stands today it's difficult to imagine the horrors that took place inside. It is now under the ownership of Tom Williams and Barbara Holmes. It was built in 1895, and it's gone through a lot of iterations. A lot of people have been in and out of it. Uh, it can't be torn down. It's considered a historic uh, house in the Sacramento, and they would not let anybody tear it down. So it's here it sits. The Victorian house has become a tourist attraction, Tom and Barbara embraced the attention. 
We love it. Uh, we, we have no problem whatsoever with uh, any of it. So it's just our house and we made it home and we're, we're, we're pretty happy with it. Now, you still get people walking by asking, you know, how could we be crazy enough to buy this house and stuff. But between the two of us, we've made it into a home. Yeah, and, and you know, we tried to um, make it more comfortable and, and try to diffuse the whole mystique around it. And yeah, we, we're doing our best. She was a hardened criminal in the body of a little old lady. Yeah, she was a hard, hard person. Pure evil. Detective John Cabrera vividly recalls the moment he realized the little old lady was not what she seemed after uncovering the first body in her yard. I looked up at one point onto that balcony, and Dorothea was standing there looking right straight down at me, knowing that probably within minutes, I was going to uncover that second body, and sidetracked me from digging in order to walk her over to the motel, and it's there she made her escape. She was a very evil woman, and a woman that when she made her mind up what she was going to do, she did it without hesitation, without remorse. She set out on a journey, and um, that journey ended November 11th, 1988, when we arrived at her doorstep. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. The series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A very special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thank you. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, in the autumn of 1984 in Paris, France, two men embarked on a brutal crime spree. In just six weeks, they attacked nine elderly women in their homes, intent on taking their money and their lives. 21-year-old Thierry Paulan and his partner, Jean-Thierry Matoran, tortured their victims even making one drink drain cleaner. The photos and pictures were awful. It was difficult, very difficult. But after the couple split, Paulan continued to make a name for himself. By the time he was finally apprehended in December 1987, Thierry Paulan admitted to the murder of at least 21 helpless elderly women. He really was the worst criminal I have ever seen in the course of my long career. The worst.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 